Welcome to False Bottom Girls, a podcast about the wonderful yet sometimes confusing world of beer and brewing. Hi, I'm Rachel Hudson, owner of Pilot Brewing and an Advanced Cicerone. Hi, I'm Jen Blair, sensory expert, home brewer, and Advanced Cicerone. Welcome everyone to this episode of False Bottom Girls. Uh, that is Rachel Hudson in the middle of a stretch. Oh, yes, you can't see it, so I'm making the noise for you. My stretchy noise. And that is Jen in the middle of a joke. Yep. Uh, I'm always feel like I'm in the middle of a joke or often. So um, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> today we are talking about color, specifically beer color. And this is interesting because I think we, we meaning the Royal, we myself, probably you as well, <laughs> Rachel, like we really don't talk about color that often. And I no. don't dive into color as deeply as I do into like flavor. And I think that's because it's, it's also kind of been conditioned to us to do that in a way, like, right. As we've studied beer styles and it's like, okay, well, it's the color of this, possibly this, you know, or, uh, and then it's like either clear or it's hazy. And then we talk about like the head, the way that looks. So yeah, and then we have our bullet checkpoints and then we move on. So you right. never really do a deep dive into color and like how it can be perceived differently and what different colors mean, where they come from, because it's not just one place. Right. I think a lot of that too is probably just because like we're we learn our colors at a very young age, right? Like you go, yeah. I think that's one of the assessments to like get into kindergarten or something as you know, yeah. basic <laughs> colors. And like you have art class and you learn about like primary and secondary colors and all of that. So we're all conditioned for our entire lives to know just what color is. imagine like little German kids going to school and they're like, they get pictures of like a logger. And like these loggers, yellow. And the Bach, <laughs> and the Bach is brown. <laughs> That's what I think. Right. That's what I like to believe. <laughs> Color flashcards with beer styles. Yes. Yeah, uh, probably so. But yeah, <laughs> I think it's we spend more time on things like flavor and aroma because that's not something that's as conditioned in us and also not as studied. You know, yeah. I mean, and we've always True. been trying to figure out how we see and like Sir Isaac Newton once stared at the sun for several oh, days. Very good. Very good. Just, just to see what happened. <laughs> but a lot of optics research is founded on the research that Sir Isaac Newton did. Yeah. Did on himself by doing things like what happens if I stare at the sun for several days? What happens if I stick a pin into my eyeball? What happens then? Yeah. And so. And because of science, I can tell you exactly what happens to your beer. If you stare at it for several days, it will, <laughs> it will darken in color. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, science. Because of science, I did not have to stay out my beer for a couple of days straight. <laughs> right. right. You say that, and I picture like very much like the men who stare at goats, like doing it just, for like, science. Very intensely staring at beer <laughs> for for several days. Yes. Yeah, so thanks, science, for yeah. for a lot of things. Um, we believe in you uh, because you're real and provable. So back to color. When we're talking about color. It's helpful to start with vision because that's how we see things. Um, we're not going to go into synesthesia where people like Ooh. see colors or taste colors. Man, but if you want to dive into a cool subject, yeah, that is a cool subject. You do have that that book, right? Like the man I, who could. See I have a book. Colors I, like I also shapes. know a person who. I'm trying to think of the right word. Synes experiences synesthesia, synesthesia but. It's synesthesiast. I don't know. But yeah, like this uh, girl, this girl who's friends with my brother's wife, like textbook classic, you know, sees taste, taste. Uh, God, I can't remember exactly because it's different for everyone. But she would associate my name and the letters of my name with different colors. So letters were associated as colors and people were associated with a color too, kind of like an aura. Okay. But, but I don't think she's actually seeing the, I, I God, we should get her on an episode. She's also hilarious. She's like a comedian too. It'd be so fun. <laughs> All right. But not to go too off, but 
she she uh <laughs> she um oh god what, oh the reason she even figured this out is because when she was younger i mean she just grew up this way just thinking this is just like normal life you know i see these things i perceive these things differently right that doesn't everyone and um she said she was watching a show or that as younger she would try to she would say things to her parents be like oh it's like this and they would be like no it's not it's like it's this, it's this, like, what's wrong with you, you dumb child. And then she said she was watching a TV show one day, like a, you know, documentary about this condition. And she was like, holy fuck, this is me. And she's like, mom, dad, look, this is me. And they're like, no, you're, you're silly, you know? And like still for like many years went undiagnosed and then finally did as she got older. And it's, God, we got to get her on episode because it's going to be the best follow up episode of this episode. Yeah, no, for <laughs> but sure. It's really interesting. That's it's um, also similar to and this isn't exactly the same thing. But when you read about like people who do the memory competitions and have memory palaces, they will associate um, like numbers with letters and then form those into words or colors or mm -hmm. songs. And that's how and they can remember with, things. Yeah. You see it with people with like autism too. They're like very good at one particular thing, but that's not exactly the same thing as synesthesia. Like that right. is, that is, I mean, I'm no doctor, but it seems to You're me. You're not? Wait, no, wait hold, on, hold, on, hold on, hold on. Shocking everyone. <laughs> I actually got my doctorate degree and then I quit to open a brewery, make no money. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Just kidding. But yeah, it's uh. It, it's it, it's not the same thing as colorblindness, but it does, you know, this is kind of where the root of what we're talking about, you know, just this, like my brother sees greens and blues differently than I do. Mm -hmm. And who knows if I'm the wrong one or he's the wrong one. He's the wrong one. Oh, he's obviously. the wrong one. But, Scientifically speaking, <laughs> men scientific are more speaking. likely to be colorblind than but, women. And he's always been like that. Um, but that's, uh, you know, that's a good reason why you can't just look at a beer and just take someone's word for it. Because he might see a blue beer and think it's green or a red beer and think it's brown. That's pretty common too, um, brown and red. So not to jump too off the subject, which I know we, right. I like to do sometimes, but. No, that's fine. Well, and I, I have a friend who um, just recently got her certified Cicerone and she, her training was originally in wine. And so mm -hmm. she has talked before about how she associates off flavors with colors Mm. And, and actually maybe not even just off flavors, maybe it's just beer flavor, but it's, we were talking about it in the scope of off flavors yeah. and she would say like, she'll taste something and say, this is green, like, or, mm. you know, this, this tastes purple. Yeah. And that's yeah. just how she learned with wine, how to associate. So she'll, she'll say things like this or like this tastes blue. And that's, it's like a code that, you know, she's also developed to get in her, her mind. Yeah. We'll have we two, should. Two guests. We'll get, and, you know, yeah. uh, and we're, we'll talk about colorblindness in a minute, just a little bit, but I have another friend who is in brewing who is colorblind. And I meant to ask him how he evaluates because he's, he yeah. really likes sensory and um, was on the sensory panels and stuff. So I, I'm interested to know how he evaluates colors, but he always really liked to do the titratable acidity for beers because you do that by, you know, putting so many drops of a solution yeah. into the beer to measure the acidity. But he could see the color change probably. Yeah. So when he yeah. knew, yeah. So that he really liked doing that because he yeah. was very <laughs> yeah. good at it and was better at it than anybody else. Yeah. Uh, so this is a lot about vitamins. We haven't even got to our subject matter yet. And we've got um, all of these different stories about how people perceive, which most of perception is just all of us agreeing on one mm -hmm. thing. And we do that with flavor and aroma too. Yes, exactly. So it's hard to like go out of the norm of what you've been so used to or taught your whole life. Right, right, exactly. And everything, this, I, I'm, I always get very solipsistic when I talk about things like vision and flavor, where it's like, we're all just brains in jars who have collectively agreed that whatever this farce is in front of us, like this is red and this is yeah. what apples smell like. And you know, this yeah. is like, this is, this is what, I don't know. This is what potato chips sound like. Uh, yeah. So we've all just <laughs> collectively agreed that, okay, whatever it is that you're seeing or feeling, it might not be exactly the same thing, but we're all just going to call it this one thing. So 
vision, one of our five named senses, sight, smell, taste, touch, hearing. I don't know why it's always so hard for me to remember that I go through all five, <laughs> um, but we do have other senses. You know, you can sense when you need yeah. to go to the bathroom, you can sense when you're going to throw up. So there's different senses, but uh, vision is one of the five main senses. So it informs us about the surface appearance of things. So their size, their shape, their color, uh, their texture. And again, I won't go too far in, into this again, um, but this is probably just gonna be my mindset for the rest of the day now. But most objects we can see because they reflect light from other sources. Like most things aren't luminescent on their own. And a lot of the color of the colors that we see are because different wavelengths have been absorbed and so like if we let's stick with the color green right so if we're talking about the we see something that's green what we're really seeing is not red and so it's like it would mm -hmm. be very hard to say like oh look at that very pretty not red shirt you're yeah. wearing um, that would be very weird to talk like yeah. that. But generally speaking, when you when you're saying something or like I see red, what you're actually seeing is not green because that green light has been absorbed and the red light hasn't been absorbed. Um, but yeah, maybe we'll just start that. Maybe I'll just <laughs> just go full weirdo <laughs> for the rest of my life and be like, your eyes are such a pretty color of not yellow. Yeah. Look Meet at me this here. Clear. I'll be Look wearing at... the not red shirt, yeah. not red, not blue, not yellow, not purple shirt. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but we have, you know, the human body is very complex. I don't, I don't know if you knew that, Rachel, but it is. Um, <laughs> and it has a lot of different kinds of receptors and our receptors will respond to different kinds of stimuli, but they only produce one kind of sensation. And when we're talking about our vision, we're talking about our vision receptors, which are rods and cones. And the way I remember this is cones, color. Rods is black and white. So they work together to help us form ideas. And if you're colorblind, I believe, um, it means that you have an, an absence of certain kinds of cones. And it is going to be like green and blue are the first that are going to be varying levels of not being able to see. And like we mentioned a few minutes ago, men are more likely to be colorblind than women. And it has something to do with the like chromosomes or, or something, but um, it's far, far more likely for out of siblings for your brother to be yeah. colorblind than for you to be colorblind. So that's just a very brief overview of vision, how we perceive. Um, I don't know if I've talked about this before, but talking about eyes, you can see even now I get super grossed out talking about eyes and I live my <laughs> life afraid that rubber bands are going to snap and hit me in my eyes. Or um, if there's any kind of like a beer with a cork, uh, I have to have somebody else open it because and open it like very far away from me because I'm terrified I've that seen, it's going to pop out and hit me in the eye. I've, I've seen them do that. I've yeah, seen them pop so, out. Yeah. It's real thick. <laughs> no, I know. Do you like it when I do my eye trick? <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't dislike it. Here it is for you. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I just I stuff always freaks me out. So that's really doesn't have anything to do with beer color. So let's talk. <laughs> Luckily, it does not affect her judging of color. <laughs> right. Right. Um, although I do, it is. I shouldn't disclose this on this podcast, but I think all of our listeners are nice people who wouldn't torment me the same way my husband does. <laughs> um, but every once in a while, when he'll go to open a beer or wine or something that has He's a like, fork eh. in it, like, yeah, like he kind of like points it toward me and I just fucking flip out. I'm like, no, no, my eyes, my eyes, my eyes, my precious eyes. Not worried about my mouth, my cheek, like nothing else. My just nose, my eyes. nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Those things can all recover, but I don't want anything touching my eyes. So, Given that, let's do a very clumsy segue into the history of beer color and how it's measured. So, Rachel, why don't you start us off by talking about uh, the Levabond scale? So, the Levabond scale, which I think before I talk about, go into that real quick, we're just going to talk about these different terms that you hear that we're going to be saying 
throwing around. Um, if you are brewing beer or if you are studying about beer, you've started to notice things like the Levibon, the SRM, the EBC. Um, these are all different ways of expressing color of something. So the Levibon was first in, like created, this system was first created by, in 1883 by a guy named Levibon. And he used color slides that were compared to beer color to determine the degree of Levibon. And this is supposed to be the degree of beer color. Um, side note, if you just today, Levibon is referred to the color of malt. But when it was first created, it was deferred to the color of beer. Um, so over time, we realized that we were having limitations with this system. One of the reasons being that some people are colorblind. Um, and they are seeing things different, or some people just perceive different levels of brown and red as different hues, and they might perceive one as brown and one as red, and that's not very consistent. Um, so by the mid 20th century, so by the mid uh, 20th century, the light spectrophotometer technology was developed, and this what started this allowed us to adapt a system called the standard reference method. Um, known as SRM, which we use today in the United States. Um, BJCPCIL guidelines use it. If you see in your uh, statistics for each style, it says SRM and it has a range. That uh, range goes from zero to 40. Uh, so zero being, I guess it technically goes to one. Yeah. But what? <laughs> zero being water. Zero white. Oh, yeah, clear. Yeah. <laughs> so one to 40, one being very, very light, pale, uh, yellow, and then 40 being black, basically. Um, so you kind of, when you talk about, you know, this is SRM of 25 or 30, as you get to know beer, just the same way as you got to know the Fahrenheit system, that scale starts to mean something to you. Um, so this is around 1950, about when this was created. So almost 100 years of trying to get through learning about Levibon and d determining the best or not best methods it, it gave to us as brewers and determining beer color. So uh, also separately, the Europeans developed their own color system called the Euro European Brewing Convention, EBC. Uh, they are pretty similar to each other. Jen, I'm not sure, but is EBC, what's the scale for that? Is that zero to 40? No, it is. Um, so the difference between SRM and EBC is the ASBC used the spectro, Jesus Christ, spectrophotometer. You asked me that <laughs> earlier and I was like, boom, said it. Yeah. And then I looked at it again and I was like, I've never seen this word before. It's a very long word. You're like, yeah. at least pronounce every yeah, syllable. Exactly. It's like <laughs> spectrophotometer. <laughs> <laughs> but the, you know, true to United States, the ASBC, the association American Society Brewing. Brewing Chemists, thank you. Uh, they decided to create just completely from whole cloth a new way. So that was the standard reference method. And the EBC used the same spectrophotometer to improve on the Levibon. So that's where the difference is. Got it. Um, so it is, they developed a new visual standard, but it was they used Levibon and said, how can we improve on this? Whereas ASBC said, we're going to create something completely new. So EBC scale, I know that you, you can convert between the two. It's roughly a factor of two. Mm -hmm. So I believe that it starts about the same and then at a certain point starts compounding. So when you have like an SRM of 30, that's going to correlate to an EBC of maybe like 58. Yeah, which makes sense because that's the same thing for Levibon. So if right. you created this at a Levibon. So yeah, while we're on that little topic, if you have, there is a calculation to convert SRM and Levibon, um, but it's not like a catch-all. So what I mean by that is like, if you have a malt that is four degree Levibon, from this calculation, it will be 4.66 degree SRM. But if the malt's 160 degree Levibon, then it's going to be 216 degrees SRM, which is a big difference, a lot bigger than the first example. So that is something you need to be aware of if you are trying to convert a, you know, something on your COA 
to your beer recipe program. Um, right. For whatever reason. Right. Uh, and generally, now, oh, oh, no, go ahead. I was just going to say now today, Levabon is refers to malt color and not beer color. Right. And generally speaking, really when it comes to color, and I think this is also part of why when we started talking about doing this episode, I was like, yeah, I never really spend that time much time thinking about color because it's when I'm developing a recipe, I'm going to generally be in the range, the SRM range for whatever style I'm building, because, you know, the styles are built from the, like the malts and everything, mm-hmm. obviously that you're using and those SRM are calculated from that. So generally speaking, I think the only time I really worry about beer color is when it's going to be too dark. Mm-hmm. But most of the research, just like everything else in beer for many, 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 many years has been very big breweries trying to make very consistent, extremely light colored beer. So when you're looking at the research, so much of it is focused on how can you make the lightest colored beer possible? Because the people doing the research and funding the research are making beers that are two to three SRM. So it's extremely important that they don't have anything yeah. darker than that. Um, well, and also is it, it's very malt stir dependent as well. Like there's chocolate malt that you could get that ranges for 300 to 500 SRM. And that is going to make, if you don't know which one you're getting, you might not do what's correct for your recipe and have like a really light, like I, I had a a stout recipe that became a brown ale once Mm -hmm. (laughs) like, so you got it or in opposite, I had a red ale that became a brown ale. So you have to pay attention to that too, because one isn't the same as all. Right. And it's, I was reading, so a lot of my research for today came from the Designing Great Beers book by Ray Daniels. And it was, I think it was written maybe in like 2000. So it was even still before there was like software, you know, like software that homebrewers use. So I think that's another reason why I've never really worried that much about color because I have a program that tells me what the color is probably going to be Yeah, based on what I have. Um, But yeah, to, if you see and I, I can't imagine a situation where it would be like an emergency situation. You need to know how to convert between SRM and EBC, but it's 1.97 is the difference. So if you're trying to figure, if you've got an SRM and you're trying to figure out what the EBC is, you just multiply it by 1.97 or just generally remember it's going to be a factor of two that's going to get you close enough. Um, and this is just a very bizarre aside, but the... So I you know, started my beer blog in 2016 when people still had beer blogs. Now I just call it a website, but all of the information from the beer blog days is on there. And I would do like weekly vocab words and, or weekly, you know, uh, one of the ones I did was how to calculate EBC versus SRM, what the differences were between the two. And that for like the past, two or three years has been the, like the most popular thing yeah. on my website. So if you Google EBC versus SRM, it is highly likely that the first hit you're going to get is my, my website. <laughs> and it's just bizarre. Before that, it was um, one I did explaining the, why Corona has skunk flavor in it. Um, and then it was just random men on the internet, not reading the article and yelling at me about how I don't understand how beer works and the skunk flavor is actually the bitterness and maybe I should just stick to soda. Uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm happy now that it's like the EBC versus SRM, but it's just the strangest, like something, you know, from four years ago. Yeah. It's like the highest, like drives the most amount of traffic to my website. One of those things that like, you don't expect it to turn out that way. And it did. So intent versus impact, I guess. Yeah. So back to our beer color history and our um, SRM EBC Leva Bond. You did a great job of explaining what those differences were um, because yeah, I know even now, I think if you ask me, well, now I do because you just explained it to us, but I like, I, I can't easily convert Leva Bond to SRM, but I've brewed for long enough that I know what it means. Like, you know what yeah. I mean? So if I, yeah, if I'm getting a chocolate malt, my first question is, is it going to be pale chocolate malt or dark chocolate malt? And, you know, going from there. Um, 
But yeah, so we talked about how we measure color, but let's talk about where color comes from. Yes. So I'll let you go ahead. So sure, when a sugar and an amino love each other very much, they create <laughs> they create a Maillard reaction. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so when we're talking about where the beer color comes from and the chemistry of beer color, Maillard reactions are going to be the most important source of color in beer, and that's going to come from the malt. And this is one of those things that I didn't ever really think about until one night when I was a pilot and I was doing the monthly beer education, I was doing like a beer 101. And, and I know Rachel, you had something similar happen to you where I like, I go through this whole thing and I think I'm making total sense Um, Uh, and I am making total sense. But when you're talking to a beginner, there are things that you're inferring that they don't necessarily know. And somebody said, when do you add the color to the beer or the hops, what it is that adds the color to the beer and having to stop and be like, yes, that's not, it doesn't intuitively make sense to somebody who doesn't know anything about beer, where the beer color comes from the beer color is going to overwhelmingly come from the malt that you're using or the grains that you're using. So our Maillard reactions are going to account for the formation of color in malt production and in beer production. So the, I won't go very deep into the Maillard reaction, mainly because it works by magic as far as I can tell. Um, And there are still several parts of Maillard reactions that science does not quite understand, but they have a pretty good explanation for. But it's going to begin with reactions between sugars and amino acids. And with within the concept of beer, maltose is the sugar that con- that contributes the most to forming color, followed by fructose and glucose. So luckily, malt is very high in maltose. Uh, so that's where we're going to get our beer color. And during the, the malting process, that, that's also happening during the malting process. And the so malting process is steep germination kiln. The steeping part is actually the, the most important part of determining beer color because the color is going to be directly related to how hydrated that, that barley is in that first step of steeping. Uh, So maltose is going to be the sugar that contributes the most to creating color. And then the amino acids, um, threonine is going to be preferentially consumed, but the most basic amino acids and basic in this case, meaning the ones with like the higher alkalinity in them. So basic versus acidic, not the most basic amino acids, like they like pumpkin spice lattes, but it is interesting I think during that process, how you, the, the same way that like yeast has a preference on what kinds of sugars it eats, it's, it's just always interesting to me when there are these processes where like there is a preferential order in which like during the Maillard reaction, amino acids are going to be consumed. So during the Maillard reaction, the melanoidins are the result and the, the Maillard reaction is also known as a browning reaction. So it does... This like is the same as when bread. you, yeah, toasting your it's bread, like cooking, roasting, your yeah. yeah, roasting potatoes, grilling meat. All of those are Maillard reactions that are happening and they're happening the same way, sugars and amino acids. Uh, so we will have in malls our melanoidins, and those are going to also be a primary source of aroma and flavor in beer. Um, so other factors contributing to Maillard reactions include time, temperature, water content, and pH with uh, time and temperature are going to be the most significant significant variables. And we have reached the extent of my knowledge to Maillard reactions <laughs> and my master Cicerone score will also reflect that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think kind of just backing up a little bit, just to explain to our, you know, not novice beer listeners, uh, color of beer does come, yes, from everything Jen described, but like as a brewer, you, you're picking the malts that you need for your recipe, right? Mm-hmm. And one way I like to describe it to people when we're doing guest brew days is like you chicken noodle soup, like you have like a stock base of chicken stock, right? And then you have all these different ingredients and there's 1000 ways to make chicken noodle soup. And that's like the same as 
beer, like, a, you know, IPA that people, like, how do you know how, to, how do you come with new IPAs recipes? And I explained it to like that. It's like, it's all about the specialty stuff. And then when we're, when we as brewers decide to make a stout or a brown ale or amber ale, all those different levels of color come from the specialty malts that we're choosing, the special ingredients that we're adding in, if you will, um, in a visual way. What Jen explained to you was all the scientific way. But you as a brewer, you're like, I need I need a brown ale. I, I need it to be this color brown, but not too dark. And then that's kind of the art part of what you are balancing in your recipe. Yeah, um, I think that's really good. That's a really good analogy because yes, when particularly when you're building a beer recipe, most of the time, the majority of it is going to be like two row or pale yeah. malt and then yeah and then all of those so yeah i think that's a really great and you're way and we use that. jen and i use a beer program that ha- has this like color range for each style set in there for us so as we add different malts we can see the color of the beer is it 100 perfect no but it's pretty close so it's not like we are just pulling this recipe out of our head like okay this many pounds of this malt to be exactly this color like we're using a program to like help guide us through this so it's not like a it's not rocket science right like you don't you don't have to get you know you don't have to be too worried about how do I figure out the exact right amber color for my amber beer I mean unless you're doing everything by hand the old school way yeah it's gonna be a lot harder but there are (laughs) there are programs for that Right. And generally speaking, the beer color is the the result of and we kind of touched on this earlier and you touched on it just now. The beer color is the result of the ingredients you're using. You don't you're not necessarily using the ingredients to get that beer color. Yeah. If you're, if you're making a brown ale, well, there are ingredients yeah. that you're using to form that recipe and then the, the color will kind of naturally flow from it. And like you said, if it's going to be too dark, you can adjust some of your proportions a little bit. Yeah, I will use a malt just simply for color. So like mm-hmm. our Oktoberfest, for example, has a dash of chocolate malt in it that's strictly for color, mm-hmm. um, just to darken it without giving it any of those extra caramel flavors. So that's like one right. of the things, using too much caramel to get that dark flavor. And then all of a sudden it tastes too caramelly. Right. So that that's uh, one reason why we would use it for simply for color. but you are correct. If it, the people n- did not approach beer styles when they were making beer styles by what color they wanted the beer to be, it was all about the ingredients they had to use. And right. Thus we got color and other right. things will affect. It's not just malt. Um, you know, the, some of the process, yeah, will affect color, but also are you adding fruit? I mean, clearly that's going to affect the color of the beer mm-hmm. in a maybe bright pink way or purple way or green way you know not something you not a color associated in that srm scale (laughs) to make things more confusing (laughs) right right so then um let's go on to we've talked about so our maillard reaction is going to be the most significant source of color the second most significant source of color in beer is going to be the oxidation of polyphenols Uh, So polyphenols are also known as tannins. Those are going to come from malt and barley husks and also from hops. So if you reduce your polyphenol levels and reduction and reduce the amount of wort oxidation, that can also help reduce the color from polyphenols. Um, And then our, our other source of color is going to be caramelization. And so Maillard reactions, caramelizations are two different things. Um, because caramelization occurring in beer doesn't involve nitrogen containing compounds. So amino acids, mm-hmm. whereas Maillard reaction necessarily involves amino acids. So caramelization occurs in the boil, but to a limited extent. And if you have longer boils or higher gravity wort, that's going to increase the amount of caramelization produced. Um, so not every, it is a source of beer color. Obviously you're not looking for caramelization in every beer that you make, um, but it is a way that you can affect beer color. And I've done that before with a wee heavy doing like a kettle caramelization 
where you run just a little bit of your wort from the mash into the boil kettle and your boil kettle is already hot. So you get a little bit of caramelization that's in part for flavor and in part for color. But generally speaking, your malt is going to be what determines the color of your beer. And then like Rachel said, if you're adding fruit to it, of course, that's going to change the color of the beer, although not always in the way you expect, like blueberries True. don't make a beer blue. blue. They kind of make it like a fuchsia. Like, yeah. And yeah. like strawberries don't contribute very much color at no. all. No. And yeah. So a lot of times the, like the most raspberries and cherries are the mo- the ones that are going to affect Ugh. the beer color the most dramatically. Yeah. And then cherries will make it taste like cough medicine every <laughs> single time. I can't get around <laughs> it. I cannot get around it. I, um, I, it depends on the beer, but yeah, if there's, if it's something, if it's basically, if it's not a fruit lambic, it's going to be questionable whether I can stand the cherries or not, because yeah. yes, I have, I hate cough syrup so much. Oh yeah. I will be sick <laughs> for multiple days rather oh, yeah. than take cough syrup. Um, and I, yeah. So if I get the cherry flavor and it's cough syrup immediately, I'm like, nope, can't do it. <laughs> can't yeah. drink this. I'm sorry. I'm sure it's a lovely beer. It's not you. It's me. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, when we're uh, talking about how to control beer color um, with our ingredients, the, again, the malt and malt extracts are going to have the greatest effect on beer color. And as Rachel mentioned, the malt color is going to be measured in degree love bond um, it's almost exclusively contributed by the melanoidins that we talked about um, during the Maillard reaction, um, but malt color doesn't necessarily correlate well with the final color of the finished beer, the actual color of the finished beer. So that's like what Rachel was saying. Um, if you're using a software, a brewing software to help you build your recipes, which I, I don't know of anybody who doesn't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, that you'll learn that as, you know, and it's the same thing if you're putting, uh, again, like let's use the, the chicken noodle soup recipe. Um, if you add soy sauce into your broth it's going to make the broth darker, but it's not going to make it the same color as the soy sauce because there's other colors in there. Unless Uh, you add 50% soy sauce. Right. (laughs) Right. But even then ridiculous amount. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it would still be not taste good and really dark. So our the malt malt extracts are going to have the greatest effect on beer color, but color can also be influenced by hops. It can also be influenced by water. And so hops, of course, are going to contain the polyphenols, which are going to darken the color of the beer. Um, and they can contribute very small amounts of reducing sugars, which is going to impact the Maillard reactions happening in the boil. Uh, but the the color contribution added by hops is likely going to be unnoticeable. Mm-hmm. I would say the so again the like the the designing great beers book. There's a lot of really good information in there. Like that's how I learned how to calculate a malt bill. And um, it's it was definitely written of a time when there wasn't software programs. And so the like if you read through the chapter, there are several different ways that Ray Daniels gives for how to figure out color for a craft brewer. And they are all very involved. And it's, <laughs> it's like dilution and all of this stuff where it's like, I can't imagine the in 2000, like having to figure out SRM for consi- like if you're a large enough craft brewer, you know, where you're like, you need consistency and you're trying to figure out like the precise SRM and stuff. Yeah. I can't imagine that it's, it's like, it's so involved. Whereas now I, we just take it for granted that our program tells us like, yes, it's probably going to be this color and it's probably going to be that color or very close to it. But the exception I will say to the color contribution is the style that didn't exist when the book was written, which is new England IPA. And when things are really heavily dry hopped, sometimes you get this very like gray yeah yeah I've seen a little purplish sometimes from like overly dry hopped beers or beers with too much hot matter in it still um so that it looks like dirty dishwater and is like it's not it's not appetizing and I want to say I think the yeah it looks like dirty dishwater like bomb water I think the I think 
both the Brewers Association and the BJCP have updated it to say like it shouldn't be grayish or green. Yeah, because that's gross. Right. Uh, so it is possible that if you have a high amount of hops, that they can contribute some color to the finished beer. Um, but really, I guess it would. It, they mostly affect but they the, shouldn't. the clarity. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it looks murky. Yeah. Uh, but it will have like a greenish grayish color to it. And so water used for malting and brewing can impact the color as well. So because of its high alkalinity, carbonate water will hasten melanoidin formation and increases polyphenol extraction as well as increases caramelization. So if you're looking for a lighter colored beer, and again, this a lot of this information is given within the scope of major brewers turning out millions of gallons a day of very, very pale beer. Uh, but if you're looking for a lighter colored beer, then you should try to remove or neutralize the carbonates from your mash and your sparge water uh, as much as possible. So generally speaking, you're probably not brewing with really high alkalinity water anyway. Um, but just for completeness sake, it's worth noting that water can impact the color of the beer, particularly if it has very high alkalinity to it. So then the other or kind of the last way you can control beer process or beer color is with the processes that you're using. So the naturally enough, the brewing processes with the greatest impact on color formation are those involved in processing grains and producing wort. So with your grain milling, the quantity and quality of the husk is important. Um, an old home brewing technique, uh, I've, I've talked to a couple of older home brewers who I know do this, uh, will actually lay out their malt maybe like the night before or um, a little bit before they start milling and they'll spray it with a water bottle to help moisten the husk so that when you go to mill it, the husk is nice and hydrated and doesn't crack or doesn't mm -hmm. crush as well. But you, the, the quantity and quality of the husk is important when you're mashing. That's where your mash pH is going to come in uh, very importantly because an increased pH so as your, you know, increased pH, as you're moving more into the basic, more alkaline ranges, that's going to enhance your polyphenol extraction. And the longer that you mash, the longer that mash water has contact with the, with the husk. So you'll also have greater polyphenol extraction. Um, when you're transferring your grist, uh, should be, you want to do that with a minimum amount of splashing, or if you can avoid um, transferring it in a way like that at all, that would be great. So I know like Rachel, you all have like a large brew in a bag system, basically. Yeah. The thing that great. we will look out for the most is when we're Vorloffing is to keep that, the water that's going onto the top of the grain or the wort to keep it underneath the grain and not splash on top of it mm. into it. That's, that's what we may on our system specifically, right. because the laudering is different. It's a big brew in a bag system, right. basically. But the Vorloff, it can have a lot of potential for um, hot side aeration. And I think that might have happened one time. No, I don't know. It's kind of hard to tell. I think back to that first Dokelbach we we dumped. And that was like one of my thoughts. But old roasted malt might have been a thing, too. So it's kind of hard to tell. But hot side aeration, that's where it comes from, which is why it can darken your beer. Um, darkens not a, it doesn't just affect the color it affects the flavor too but for right. our color episode we should do an episode on hot side aeration and whether or not it exists and it's true because that seems to be a very divisive thing between uh brewers on i didn't know that was divisive mm -hmm. I, I feel like i will avoid it at all costs because why take the chance right right <laughs> yeah it, it's very much like a pascal's wager like why not just avoid it and if it's not it's something not you actually to need it. to worry about, then it doesn't matter. And if it is something you need to worry about, then I think it's something you, you should worry about. But, but I just will, talked to we'll my have to cover it. Yeah. Then the other when you're handling your wart, I mean, really just minimizing oxygen pickup. So maybe we'll do an episode on oxygen and its role in brewing mm -hmm. and hot side duration. I think that would be it's a, a good big topic. topic. It is a big topic. Maybe it'll be a two parter. Um, and then when you're boiling, the length and the vigor of the boil, as well as the standing time, are going to contribute to your melanoidin development, as well as your caramelization. Um, so then the last step, cooling. If you're cooling very rapidly, that's going to help reduce the color formation. 
so those are the, the main things within the brewing process that you can do to control the color. And so we'll wrap up with um, talking about some things to keep in mind when, you know, when particularly when you're judging. And um, Rachel, I'll let you talk about the, what the BJCP recommends when you're thinking about color in a judging context. Yeah, so, you know, this is a set of guidelines and they, as part of helping you figure out their lingo, they kind of give you some definitions of stuff. And one of the things they talk about is color reference. Um, so they, they'll, they give you, like if you're studying, one thing that I kind of fell into a little rabbit hole was when I was studying for my second level, it's like, they'll say, oh, SRM two to three is straw, three to four yellow, five to six gold. And I'm, yeah. like, okay. I'm like, all right, I'm going to memorize these. Right? right. And like, so that way I can talk more accurately, if I memorize the SRM range, I know that it's deep amber light color. And I just want to say, just throw all that out. Don't, don't worry do about that. that. Yeah. Like, don't worry about it. It, it. The guidelines even tell you, don't worry about that so much. Just remember, this is all a reference. Um, you might see deep amber. Someone might see light copper. Like who fucking cares? Oh, well, a reason to care. And this is probably a hill I will always die on. But I do remember being at left hand and we like every week you had to go and do like sensory or whatever. And it was, it was mainly like, here's a sample of our ESB. Here's our brand description. Does this sample match our brand description? And these motherfuckers, they would put on there that it was like amber colored beer and it was not amber colored beer. It was orange. It was I'm going to find the right word right here, right? It was, I don't know what it was, but it was not, it was wrong. And it would piss me off. I would say, I'd be like, this all tastes great, but the color is not the color that you say. And I'd leave. And I'd say that every single time, like the whole year. No one ever said anything to me about it. It's like, at least like take, at least talk to me, make sure I'm feeling okay. (laughs) (laughs) So that's all I have to say about that. But uh, SRM range from, according to this two to 40. So don't wrap your head around it. It's a, it's a, you know, if you're worried about memorizing anything, memorize your stats that come with the style guidelines, because that's what you're going to get tested on. No one's going to say, what's the SRM for dark Brown. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah. And they'll say for Irish South. Right. And I, I have learned just the more experience you have, the more you can, you know, read like this beer should be two to four and look at a beer and say, this is too dark. And I can look at the beer and say too dark. I'm not going to say this is a six or a seven. I am not a lab instrument. Yes. I'm a human. So, and that won't really happen if you submit a beer for a competition, unless it's wildly wrong. Exactly. And typically speaking, Unless something is just, yes, unless it's just wildly wrong, I'll, I'll make a note of this seems a little dark or a little light for the style, but I generally won't deduct points. Yeah. Or if I do, it's it's not going to be the point that determines whether they win or not, right? Um, but it's, I have gotten score sheets back before from people who will say this is two to three SRM. don't do that. It's the same thing as saying, and we've talked about this as getting a score sheet that says you should lower your IBUs by three. (laughs) No, you don't know that. You don't know that. And so that's just, it's, it's, I I don't know. I don't want to say it's bad judging. I will say it's more uninformed. Yes, exactly. There are lab instruments to tell us what SRM is as humans, we describe it in color. And I, I personally am terrible. If you ask me what is the SRM of the Sierra Nevada pale ale? I would be like, I don't fucking know. It's, it's amber. Yeah, exactly. It's, <laughs> uh, well, for the style of American pale ale, it's between five and right. 10. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so like, yeah. So I'm like, I guess it's somewhere which, in there. Which they did to us on our master. They're like, what's the SRM of this beer? I, I was like, you mean the style? No, no, no. That particular beer. I'm like, fuck you, man. No one knows that. <laughs> like, right. You don't know that. Yeah. (laughs) Just trying to make sure that no one gets a 100 on that test, you know? Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So it's, um, I think that this is extremely good guidance, Rachel, that like you're saying is don't spend time trying to correlate colors to 
SRM, like memorize the ranges and spend time evaluating the beer color. And then eventually like it will kind of start to go together in your mind. But yeah, if you ask me, what is the SRM of copper? I don't know. I, I, Let me look I would at my guide like, real quick. I don't know. Like light copper, 15 to 17, copper yeah. or deep copper. Right. <laughs> right. Like, and the other thing that the, the SRM doesn't, it's, it's more of a, so SRM is more of a, a measure of the density of the beer rather than the actual color. So rather than the actual hue, because you can have a Flanders red ale, that's a 12 and it's very red. You can have it. I don't know, a, a Belgian devil, I think, is that within the same range? Um, that's very Brown. Yeah. And they're both going to be called a 12. SRM. And also if you have a 16 ounce glass of the beer versus a four ounce glass of the beer, that four ounce might be a little lighter just right. because of the shape, the, how much volume is in there. Um, I, I even noticed that when I uh, package sometimes, like the other day we were canning and kegging off the same take. The can had a little bit, the canning line had a little bit smaller sight glass than the, the kegging one. And it was a color difference. Mm-hmm. And, and not because the beer is a different color. It's just because of the way the light's hitting it. Right. Right, exactly. Um, so yeah, it, there is a, a large amount of subjectivity to determining the color, but I'm really glad that we did this episode because it, it really made me focus on color and think about it and yeah. walk through, okay, what does cause color in beer and how can you control beer color? Yeah, bring uh, on the so, color essay. Yeah, right. Man, if you ask me. Never seen an essay about color. Right. And listen, um, this is TM, TM, TM. I am <laughs> making a very dark colored beer. I'm going to call it Mr. Love Levabont. And nobody else can call a beer that. <laughs> it will be 50 Levabont, or no, 50 SRM. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So thank you everyone for listening to this episode of False Bottom Girls. Um, Thank you to our Patreons. I don't have your names in front of me, but you know who you are. And also thank you to everyone who has been leaving us reviews and subscribing. That is incredibly helpful. If you haven't done that already, please take a couple of minutes to do that. And you can find us on social media at False Bottom Girls. You can email us falsebottomgirls at gmail.com. You can also find us at falsebottomgirls.com. This has been False Bottom Girls. And we make the Bruin world go round. 